Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. We're in the middle of a series about God's love this fall. And today we talk about the Father's love and our being children of God. It means that we're part of God's family if Jesus is our brother and our Redeemer and our Savior and we follow him as, as his disciple. You know, <clears throat> when you think about family, how do you know when somebody is from a particular family? What marks that? Well, one thing is obvious by name. Another is by the way we look resemblance, maybe, by the way we walk and by the way we talk. If you'll indulge me for a few moments, I want to use a few personal examples to bear this out. Name. My name is James Travis Spivey, Jr. That means that my dad was James Travis Spivey, Sr., but that's not the rest of the story. When I was born in 1950, I was given that name. I was named after him. Everybody knew him, knew his name was James, but they called him Track because his middle name was Travis and that was an abbreviation for it. And then when he had to do some paperwork for the Army to fill out for the Army, they discovered from his birth certificate that in fact it was only Travis Spivey. And so after I was born, he went to court and he had his name changed to James Travis Spivey Sr. In fact, that means that I am the senior and he is the the junior, I guess. What's in a name? What's in a name? Also, the way we, the way we look, resemblance. Uh, Cindy and Jerry Cox gave Beverly and me a picture a few years ago. It was wrapped up, and when I unwrapped it, my jaw dropped to the floor. Now, way in the back, Jason, can you see that picture? <laughs> Do you see the resemblance? No. Well, you can't see it. Maybe the camera can zoom in on that picture. This is obviously an antique. It's probably over 100 years old. It looks, uh, Cindy, you think it's maybe Victorian or Edwardian, probably? Over 100 years old. Long, long before my brother was born. But when I opened this and looked at it, that is the spitting image of my brother. So much so, I took a picture of it and I sent it to his wife and she said, that's John. And I, Beverly, when she saw it, yeah, it's amazing, the resemblance. I do not know who this sailor, who was obviously in the British Army, the British Navy, sometime around the turn of the century, the 20th century, I have no idea what his name is, but I guarantee you I am related to that person. The resemblance is amazing. So not only the way we look, but the way we walk. My dad served in Vietnam, and he served with a young lieutenant by the name of Daryl Cagle. And when I reported to Fort Sill, Oklahoma in 1972, I went to his office because he was there. He was a major by that time. And when I walked into his office, he greeted me and said, hello, Jim. I said, how did you know who I was? He said, I was at the window when I saw you walking up, and I watched you walk, and I knew that you were your dad's son. You've got the same walk. Isn't that amazing? Even the way we walk sometimes and the way we talk, 
the way we talk. There's a slight inflection that I pick up when I hear our daughter on the phone that is almost exactly like Beverly, her mother. They don't talk exactly alike, but you know what I mean. There's a little bit of an inflection there. But in our family, not only the way we talk, but what we talk. You know, Psalm 35 says that there will be weeping for the night. It will endure for the night. But what? Joy comes in the morning. And so whenever we finish a phone call or whenever I leave the house after visiting my mother or another member of the family, my brother and his family, we always depart with this word, I'll see you in the morning, which is a promise that even if we do not see each other physically here on this earth, if something happens that we will be, as we gather at the river, we will see each other in the morning. You know, families all have traditions like those. They make us unique. The DNA of families. Israel was not unlike that. Israel corporately was God's people, his kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And this covenant was the covenant of grace. Some think it was a covenant of works, it was. And it was a covenant of grace based on keeping God's law and abiding by the covenant that he had then formed with them at Sinai. And the focus in this people of God, the family of God, was on Jehovah, as we prayed earlier in our prayer. Jehovah, the covenant Lord. And Israel was his firstborn son, Exodus 4, 22. Israel had a unique identity as a family. Their name, Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel because he had struggled with God. He was a fighter of God, and God prevailed. So in the name, the look Well, this was a hidden look, but it was a mark that God said that they must put on their males on the eighth day. They were all circumcised. Their walk, they were committed to being obedient in their walk with the Lord following the law. And their talk, not just the Hebrew language, but also what they said and how they said it and how they behaved. They were witnesses to the nations. Isaiah 43 says, God says to them, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. They were witnesses of this to the nations around them. Whenever God used Israel to defeat Sahan and Og, The rest of the nations knew that God had enabled Israel to prevail. When they saw Israel go through the Red Sea, the nations then that heard about that knew it was the Lord God that had delivered them. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, Isaiah says in chapter 42. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a what? As a light to the nations. And of course, we celebrate that at Advent with the lighting of the candle. In the New Testament, there is a shift in this identity. It's no longer just Israel. It is still a covenant of grace, but this time instead of obeying the law, it is to be graced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the family of God then is extended beyond the 12 tribes of Israel then to all races and all nations uniting all that would follow Jesus Christ into one family. And the focus then in the New Testament is not so much on Jehovah, although he is the Father. There is a new name by which he is called, and that is God as Father, who redeems his children 
and adopts them and brings them into his family. And that's what we celebrate this morning when we talk about being children of God. Would you stand for me as we read God's word from 1 John, the third chapter? Beginning in verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. You know, the context behind this passage in chapters 1 and 2, we have been told already that as followers of Christ, we walk in fellowship, family fellowship with the Father and the Son. We are sinners as we prayed this morning, as Joel prayed in his prayer of confession. We are sinners, but we know that we can confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We then walk in fellowship, not just with the Father and the Son, but we walk in fellowship with one another. And we're commanded to do what? As we have said the last three weeks, to love the brothers and the sisters as we walk in fellowship. The world is different. The world does not know him. The world that loves worldly things does not know God, it does not know the Father, and it does not know the Son. But we, the children of God, are anointed by the Spirit, and He teaches us how to continue abiding in the Father and in the Son, how to stay in the family. We know that Christ is coming again, He tells us near the end of chapter 2, and we are to abide in Him so that when He returns, we can approach Him with confidence. And then he closes chapter 2 by calling us little children. Little children, you have been born of God. And because you have, you're to live righteously. All of that is the context for this passage in chapter 3. And there are two or three important points, I think, that come out of these three brief verses. I think the first is that the Father's love, indeed, makes us unique. It makes us different in several ways. So we follow Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jehovah God Almighty is our Father. And we're in His family, and His love makes us different. It changes us. Secondly, the Father's love in the future will make us even more glorious, and that is a promise of the Word of God. And then finally, we are then enjoined in verse number three to do something. To abide in the Father's legacy. The Father's legacy is this. While we are here, we are to become more like Him. There should become a family resemblance so that when people see us, their jaw ought to drop and they say, my, those must be people of God. Look at the first point. The Father's love makes us different. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. You know, when the word there, great, is used, we've, we've used that word several times in the past month. 
in, in one sense, in Ephesians, the third chapter, it talked about the greatness, the extent of God's love, its height and depth and breadth and width. But that's not what's spoken about here. Again, in Ephesians 3, it talked about the great power that resides in us because of God's love through the Holy Spirit. But that's not the greatness that's talked about here. Last week, we talked about the abundance, the great abundance of God's love and the richness of his mercy, but that is not what great means here. In fact, the word great here is not mega or any of those other words for great. It is a word that means kind of. What kind of? What manner of? The idea here is, what kind of love is this? How amazing it must be, this divine love of God. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present what? Far too small. Love so what? Amazing. So divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. This kind of love is amazing, is what John is saying. And he says, see, he's not just saying, see what I'm about to talk about. It's not just an introductory phrase here. He's actually saying, look, look at what I'm about to show you. Observe this. You are going to be, you're going to see signs of what it means to be God's children. Visible signs of the love of God manifested in his children. This kind of love that has been bestowed, it's a perfect tense. It's not just a love that was given in the past and it died, but it has continuing and abiding results. And the word that is used there many times in the Gospel of John and then in the letters, John uses this word given to point to something of certain and divine origin. In 1 John, he uses it five or six times to communicate five very definitive gifts that God has given us. And it begins here. We have been given, bestowed upon us divinely as a gift of God to be called children of God. That's a gift. In chapter 3, a little bit later, we have been given a commandment. And it's a new commandment, which in fact, Peter says is not only, uh, he's, uh, John said earlier, it's not only a new commandment, it really is an old commandment, and that is that we're to love one another. We are given in the first letter of John, his spirit, his spirit confirms to us that we abide in the Father and that we abide in the Son. We are given in this epistle eternal life in Christ. Confirmed by the testimony of his word. We are given in this epistle understanding through Christ that we might know him and know that he is true. This is just the first of many divine gifts that John talks about in his epistle. But it, isn't it interesting? It is anchored in the fact that we are called children of God and we are in his family. We're called children of God. Sometimes we say that, well, I'm going to call you this and I'm going to call you that. I'm going to put a label on you and that's going to, it's not really who you are, but we're going to see you as being that. That's not what this means. It means literally that you are called this because that is who you are. It's a proclamation kind of call. And it's reiterated in this verse, and such we are. And in verse number two, it is a now reality. It wasn't just, con it wasn't just conveyed to our forebears but we also participate in that now. 
And we are children of God because of the Son of God. Children is the phrase that John uses for us. And what is the phrase that he uses for Jesus Christ, the Son? And they're not exactly the same. We are sons and daughters of God, but we are children of God because of the Son of God, the Huios. What does it mean to become children of God? How does this happen? Well, we know, of course, from John's gospel at the beginning. He came to those that did not know him, and he came to those that did not receive him. But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he did what? He gave them the right, the power to become what? Children of God. That's where it began. And when John explains this, how it actually occurs, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be what? If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of both the water that is naturally and of the spirit, spiritually born again. Peter does very much the same thing. He speaks about this this action of God in making us his children about being born again of imperishable seed. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is the way that Paul describes it. He uses a different word picture. Now this morning when Chelsea read the passage from Romans 8, what was the word picture that we were given there? We're born again, but then he does what? He brings us into the family through what? Through adoption. He tells us this, in Galatians as well. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman that he might do what? He might redeem those who were under the law and then might receive us through the adoption as children. How do we know that we're children of God? Once again, from this morning's passage in Romans 8, his spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Now, why does this happen? Because God's love is unique. Because the unique love of God, the love of the world does not produce this. It is a sacrificial love. For God, what? So loved the world that he what? He gave, he gave up his only begotten son for us. It's an undeserved love. God's love is unique because we don't deserve it. While we were yet sinners, we didn't deserve it. While we were in darkness, we didn't deserve it. While we were not children of God, we did not deserve it. But while we were yet sinners, what? You know it. Christ died for us. The Father's love is unique. It is an overcoming love. No other love can do this. No other love can conquer death. But because the Son loved the Father, we know from Philippians, and was obedient to the Father's command. And he so loved the Father that he did what? He obeyed him to death, even death on the cross. And we know this. We know love, John tells us in this epistle. We know this love because Christ laid down his life for us. That was the love of the Son for the Father. And then the Father's love for the Son did what? He raised him up and gave him victory over sin and death. So this defeat of death is based in the love of the Son for the Father and the Father's love for the Son that is manifested to us as children of God. God's love, the Father's love, is unique. It is a transforming love. It goes 
from spiritual death to life. We read this last week in Ephesians, the second chapter. It's a transforming love. But God being rich in His mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together in Christ. I'll remind us of what Peter said about being born again. We're born not of perishable, but of what? Imperishable seed at the graveside. Usually when we do a graveside service, often we read the end of the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. And at that point, we talk about this transition, this transformation. This mortal must put on what? Immortality. And this perishable must put on imperishability. This is what the love of God does. It is unique. It is the only love that is capable of having victory over death and sin. And we are privileged then to belong to God's unique family as a result. You know, John, when he was ministering before Jesus came, he looked around at the, at the Pharisees and at the Sadducees and brood of serpents. And he said, you know, you think that you're sons of Abraham. That's what you claim to be. And that's where you put your hope. He said, what? I'll tell you what, God can raise up out of stones. What? Sons of Abraham. Jesus looked at the Pharisees who claimed to be Abraham's children. And by lineage they were, by pure lineage, they had descended from Abraham and through the tribes of Jacob. And Jesus said, but you're not really sons of Abraham because you don't get it. To be sons of Abraham is a spiritual thing. No, in fact, we're told in Ephesians that what God's purpose was to bring us into a family that did not depend on Abraham's lineage. It didn't depend on a tribal identity. It depended on our identifying with the image of the Son of, of God, Jesus Christ. What happens from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is there's a change of allegiance. And for us, that means that we are no longer part of this world, but we are of God. There is a change of status. We're adopted into God's family in Christ. And it makes us, as we read this morning, join heirs with Christ. There's a change in the family of God that is unique. There's a change of legacy and destiny. Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is reserved where? In heaven. So there's a change of not just legacy, but destiny. And we have a different identity. Look at verse number two. He then addresses the children of God as what? Beloved, agapitas. We are beloved. You know, those of us who at once were, at one time were children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, now are beloved of God. We're welcomed into his family. We have been changed and we are being changed into the image of his beloved son as a part of being part of his family. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, even now, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That process has begun. We're being changed. We're different. We walk a different path. We have been called, Peter tells us, out of darkness into his what? Into his marvelous light. 
Once we who were in darkness are now called children of light. And we walk a pathway of fellowship with the Lord, which John began at the beginning of this letter by saying, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You see, we have a different identity and we walk a different path. And when John says, see, look, there is an observable difference between us and those that love the world. You see, the world misunderstands this. The world does not know us because it does not know God. Oh, yes, the world knows about God. Many people know about the things of God. Fewer and fewer people do today. And they even know something about what we believe. But that's not what this is talking about. It says the world does not really understand gnosko. It does not really know and understand our Father's ways. They're not familiar gnosko. They don't really know Him in an intimate way. And they don't understand how children of God relate to the Father. That's what he means here when it says they don't know us because they don't know God. Now, there's some characteristics of those, then, that know the Father. And those characteristics he's covered in chapters 1 and 2. Children of God have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and they confess their sin so that they might be forgiven, and they abide in the Father by holding to His Word. We, as the children of God, in the first chapter, he tells us, have fellowship with one another, and we're commanded to do what? To love one another as brothers and sisters. These are marks of being the children of God. Another mark is that we have been forgiven when we confess our sin. He forgives us and cleanses us. Another mark of being a child of God and a promise is that we can overcome the evil one. We can resist temptation. We can submit to God, as James said, and we can tell the devil to flee and he must do so. And another mark of being a child of God is that we are then anointed by the Holy Spirit. And no matter what the world teaches, the Holy Spirit teaches us how we can abide in Him. You see, the worldly perspective covered in chapter 2 is that the love of God is not in those who love the world. And this world is passing away, and all of its lusts and corruption and darkness And that world denies that Jesus is a Christ. Today, the world out there that loves the world deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one. They not only deny that, but they deny the Father, and they deny the Son, and they deny any familial relationship with the Father. And that's why it does not know us. And so when we come to a summary of what the family of God looks like versus what those that love the world look like, it comes later in chapter 3 and verse 10. Look at it if you've got your scripture open. By this the children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. What do you think the two distinctive marks are that John says? The difference between those that love the world and are of the devil and those that love God. First of all, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God. That means then that those who are of God do what? They practice righteousness. And the one who does not love his brother, which means then that if we're in the family of God, we love the brother and the sister.
So you see, the love of God makes us different. But the Father's love also will make us more glorious. In verse number two, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Hmm. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. You know, friends, I don't know all this means. I'm pretty clueless about everything that this could possibly mean. It's a mystery. It's a majestic mystery. I think it's beyond our comprehension, all of what this means. I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, in this world today, in the materialistic world of mere science and philosophy, in this world today, we have lost a sense of transcendence. We have lost the sense of mystery. We have lost a sense of awe in this everyday utilitarian world. Where is the mystery? Where is the glory? Where is the imagination? When John comes to the end of his revelation, when he has seen a vision of heaven, what does John do? He doesn't go, oh yeah, that's pretty good. He, He falls on his face. And he would even worship the angel that delivers the message. And the angel says, don't worship me. (laughs) It is not about me. Worship the Lord. We have lost in modern, postmodern society, a sense of glory and mystery and transcendence. But there's another reason that I think that we don't really know all that this means. And it's obvious because God has veiled the future. He's given us a foretaste of what? Glory divine. But we have not seen the picture in its fullness. We see through a mirror darkly. And we will fully see later. What about this future revealing of glory? Individually, I do believe this. Those that we have talked about this past week who have passed away that knew the Lord. Michael, Peggy's cousin. Hilda, Naomi's mother. They individually have been resurrected. They don't sleep somewhere. They rest in the Lord in heaven, but they are in heaven. They are in the presence of God. But they are hidden in Christ with God in heaven. At the same time, here on this earth, all of creation, Paul tells us in Romans, eagerly awaits what? We we await the coming of the Lord, but along with that, the revealing of the sons of God. What's going to happen when he comes? All of those that are followers of Jesus Christ, everyone who is in the family of God, they are going to be revealed in their full glory and splendor. There is going to be an unveiling. And he tells this to the Colossians. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's something about what's going to happen to us at the end times that is unimaginable, that is glorious. And in the meantime, our current responsibility is to expect his future coming, to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from lawless deeds and to purify for himself to purify us as a people of his own possession. You see, that's what's going to happen. We're going to be revealed with him. 
And the command for us is to abide in him, John says, until he appears and to practice righteousness in this life. There's a biblical promise connected with verse number two. We will see him as he is. You see, likeness recognizes likeness. Children recognize the father. Brothers recognize brothers. We will recognize him when we see him. In fact, everyone is going to see him as he is, not just the children of God. But there's a difference. You see, our eyes are set to recognize him as what? Father. When we see him as children, we will see the Father who has sent the Son to reunite us and to bring us into his glory. The world, when they see Jesus, is going to see him as he is. Those that love the world, and they're going to see him as he is as what? Not Son of God, and not seeing the Father, they're going to see the judge. We will be remade in God's image, that is the promise. What will happen is the Imago Dei that was built into us at the very beginning is going to be restored through the Son's image, and we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined then to become conformed to the image of His Son, that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And we will have a new and glorious body. Philippians says this in chapter 3, that Jesus Christ will transform this mortal body, this mortal and humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And we will be incorruptible. We will be removed from the corruption of this world, and we will then be, having been born of imperishable seed, we will be partakers, Peter tells us, of his divine nature. I don't know all that means, but folks, it is far more majestic than I can ever, ever imagine. And then finally, the Father's legacy is for us to become more like him. That's his legacy. You know, he commanded Israel in Leviticus, you shall be holy for the Lord God, your God is the one who is holy. And Jesus exhorted us on the Sermon on the Mount to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. This begins, I believe, friends, with sacrifice. You see the language that is used here when it says to purify ourselves and to be pure as he is pure. That is ceremonial language. That speaks about sacrifice. We have an obligation to be pure. This isn't about pure bloodline. It's not about the bloodline of Abraham. It's not about what tribe you belong to on this earth. That's not the purity that's spoken about here. We are responsible for doing what? To offer ourselves as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to him. The problem is our sacrifices are imperfect and pure. They are only acceptable because Jesus Christ made the sacrifice that sanctifies us and makes our sacrifice to God acceptable. So, where does that leave us in conclusion? To be pure. To be purified. We're to be obedient. We are to actually let God transform us through the image of His Son to look more like the Father. That's what he's doing with this, us, us on earth. We're to imitate Christ. 
Paul says to the Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. For you. We're to be purified by conforming to God's character as obedient children, Peter tells us, not to be conformed to our former lusts as we walked in ignorance, but to be like the Holy One who called you to be holy yourselves in all your behavior. We're to be purified through a purging of defilement, Paul tells the Corinthians. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And as Israel was commanded to do in the new covenant, we are also called to be purified as witnesses so that we can be light in a dark world. Prove yourselves, brothers and sisters, to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear, Paul says, as lights in the world. The legacy that is left with us here, brothers and sisters, as the family of God is He, through his love, enables us, through the transforming of the image of Jesus Christ, to become like he is and to partake in his divine nature. So how do we apply all these things? I think, first of all, God's love for us as his children should never cease to amaze us. We have indeed lost a sense of that amazement and mystery. We need to recover it. God's children are different. And that means, yes, that we will be unpopular with those who love the world. But it also means that we're called to be witnesses to those that are in darkness. We need to reimagine and be awed by our heavenly destiny and the inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven. And we need to reclaim the Father's legacy and let him transform us through the image of Jesus Christ, so that we might look like him and behave like him. Our hymn of invitation that we're going to sing in just a moment is, Lord, I want to be a Christian. Where? In my heart. In my heart. Lord, I want to be more loving like the Father. In my heart. In my heart. Lord, I want to be more holy, purified, not by lineage, but by the transforming power of Jesus Christ in my heart. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart, in my heart. Children of God, to be like the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.